Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Deep History of Extinction Events. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 13th, 2011. <clears throat> Next week, believers will mark the end of the liturgical year. Meanwhile, this Sunday, November 13th, we contemplate the end of the entire cosmos. For both the liturgical year and the end of history, though, the end is not the end, but the advent of a new beginning. In God's economy, all that is past will enjoy a future, and everything that he's created he will redeem. The end of the cosmos is a scientific certitude. It's also a central tenet of Christian confession. Every Sunday in my church, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Ironically, for all the conflict between science and religion, whether real or imagined, they agree on this point. Cosmic life has a definitive end. Our liturgical confessions express themes that are embedded in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And even apart from such confessions, most thoughtful people wonder what will happen when they die. We wonder about what came before the Big Bang and what will come after the cosmic crunch. The best of our writers, poets, filmmakers, and artists have given eloquent expressions to these deeply human longings. To take just one example, in his new magnum opus, Religion and Human Evolution, sociologist Robert Bella locates the origins of religion in human evolution. He starts with the Big Bang, then proceeds through the Axial Age with the simultaneous emergence of the great civilizations of Israel, Greece, China, and India. He then concludes with reflections on our cosmic end. The world has experienced five of what Bella calls extinction events that destroyed at least half of all animal species. As some of us know, says Bella, and all of us should know, we are in the midst of the sixth great extinction event at this very moment, in which we may well blow each other up with atomic weapons before we wipe out all species of life, including our own, by more gradual means. Bella calls this deep history. Psalm 90 for this week reminds us that we needn't wait millions of years for the next extinction event. He meditates upon his own personal end. Our length of days is barely 70 years before they quickly pass and we fly away like dust. After barely a blink in the cosmic scale of time, we die, and then face either annihilation in absolute nothingness or magic power of some sort. In his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, the atheist Julian Barnes says that he's never had any faith to lose. But the certainty of total extinction, both personal and cosmic, and the terror which absolute annihilation provokes in him, 
causes Barnes to admit in the first sentence of his book that while he doesn't believe in God, he misses him. The strictly secular materialist option is simple enough. When your heart and brain cease to function, yourself ceases to exist. But in this view, the self is nothing more than random neural events. There's no ghost in the machine to begin with, so in fact there's no self that ceases to exist. In postmodern parlance, personal identity is a social construction. But Barnes has nagging suspicions about this neat and clean scientific scenario. Even if they are hard to define or describe, a common sense outlook is that intelligence, aesthetic imagination, our moral impulse, consciousness, love, gratitude, guilt, regret, and the longing for immortality, all of these seem to point beyond themselves. They have the ring of truth that makes them hard to define by mere biology. And so Barnes wonders, given his genuine lack of religious faith, is it proper for him to seek and to assign any meaning to his personal story? Doesn't life enjoy a genuine narrative? Or is it only a random sequence of events that ends with total extinction? such that any and all meaning-making is purely confabulation. One thing you can be sure of, Barnes reminds us, in the end it doesn't matter what you think. The divine reality or lack thereof is what it is, and so the notion of redefining the deity into something that works for you is grotesque. Archaeological ruins like the huge and haunting Moai statues on Easter Island in the South Pacific remind us that entire cultures have collapsed. Environmental experts like Jared Diamond in his book Collapse speak of civilizational or cultural death. His 20 case studies show how some of history's most advanced civilizations have vanished. Think about it. Can you even fathom what New York City might look like a mere thousand years from now? Civilizational end has numerous precedents. The end of the earth is a done deal. It will just take a while. My friend and solar physicist Charles says that in about five billion years, the sun will expand into a red giant, 10 million times its present volume at which time it will incinerate and eventually swallow the Earth. If the Sun is about 4.6 billion years old, as many scientists estimate, we're already about halfway to the end of the Earth. It is as sure as can be, writes the particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, that humanity and all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos. Yes, these are big numbers, but they are finite numbers. This end of the Earth is cosmically insignificant compared to the end of the entire universe. Physicists are divided about the future of the entire cosmos, but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. But if the forces of gravity prevail, the expanding universe will eventually reverse its expansion 
and collapse into a big crunch. So these are our ends. Personal, civilizational, global, and cosmic. But what then? What comes after the end? No one knows or even can know. Christians propose a fifth alternative. Christian eschatology, from the Greek eschaton, last thing, believe that humanity's earthly end is not the ultimate end. The God who created the world will consummate its redemption. The readings this week remind us that what, God, what, that what began in the Garden of Eden will end in the city of Jerusalem. In just five pages, Zephaniah refers to the great day of the Lord 19 times. To the believers in Thessalonica, Paul wrote that because we trust God for the final future, we need not fret about loved ones who've died, like those who have no hope, he says. Jesus' parable of the talents points us away from theological speculation and toward personal stewardship, from eschatology to ethics, if you will. My personal end will come with a provocative question. What did I do with my life? And so following the Hebrew prophets, Jesus and Paul, Christians have confessed this quote-unquote blessed hope, Titus 2.13, down through the centuries. In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, every Sunday we confess the Apostles' Creed, one line of which reads, From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We'd recite the Nicene Creed, that Jesus shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. How will what Robert Bella calls deep history happen? I have no idea. I like C.S. Lewis's analogy of actors in a real-life drama. We don't know everything about the play, whether we're in the first or last act, or even which characters play the minor and major roles. In our ignorance, we have no idea when the end of the play ought to come. But the plot will find fulfillment, even if our limited understanding right now obscures it. Perhaps the author will fill us in after it's over. But for now, says Lewis, playing it well is what matters infinitely. For books this week, we have a guest book review by W. David Bushart, Associate Dean and Professor of Theology and Historical Studies at Denver Seminary. The title of the book is America's Four Gods, What We Say About God and What That Says About Us. The authors are Paul Frozy and Christopher Bader. Oxford University Press, 2010, 258 pages. What do you believe about the morality of adultery or stem cell research? To a greater degree than you might think, your views on these and other issues are largely determined by your theology. That is, by your view of God. 
Indeed, supporting and shaping our political, social, and economic beliefs are our beliefs about God. This theological phenomenon is the subject of a fascinating book by two sociologists. Paul Frozy and Christopher Bader teach at and conduct research from Baylor University. They present a portion of their recent research in the book America's Four Gods. Based on their findings from the Baylor Religion Survey, which was administered to over 3,300 people and supplemented by in-person interviews. Believing that the so-called culture wars may be, in fact, a war over who God is, the authors pose two major questions to discern Americans' views of God. Number one, to what extent does God interact with the world? And number two, to what extent does God judge the world? Each of these questions then creates a continuum along which the authors map people's views of God. The result is, admittedly simplified here, four dominant views of God. An authoritative God who is engaged in judgmental. A benevolent God who is engaged and not judgmental. A critical God who is not engaged and is judgmental in a distant God who was not engaged with and is not judgmental. So, how do these views relate to our views on social and ethical issues? The authors devote four chapters of the book to detailed explorations of this. God in morals, God in science, God in mammon, and in chapter six, God in evil. For this book review, one illustration must suffice. Gay marriage. According to their study, people who view God predominantly as authoritative believe that gay marriage is always wrong. Those who view God predominantly as benevolent believe gay marriage to be wrong most of the time. Those who view God predominantly as critical are less likely to believe gay marriage is wrong most of the time. And those who view God predominantly as distant believe gay marriage to be wrong sometimes. There's a clear moral progression of varying views about the morality of gay marriage and other social and moral issues, which appears to correspond to a progression of varying views about God. For a more detailed analysis of this and other issues addressed in their study, you can consult their website for this project at www. AmericasForGods.com. Though not surprising, it was disappointing to read the author's observations about many Americans' inability to describe and explain their own most basic beliefs. Many of us, they write, cannot concisely express our own deepest moral and philosophical assumptions. In a society where the pursuit of spirituality shows no signs of decline, but where mainstream media often avoid the spiritual dimensions of societal issues, the authors offer the provocative and constructive suggestion that the country is not divided into the religious and the irreligious, but rather by specific images of God. A guest book review by W. David Bushart. The title of the book, America's Four Gods. The authors, Paul Frozy and Christopher Bader.
For film this week, I review Freakonomics from the year 2010. If, like me, you've never read the bestseller book of the same title, Four Million Copies Sold, by Stephen Levitt, an economist from University of Chicago, and Stephen Dubner, a journalist, this 90-minute documentary might be an adequate substitute. As an economist, Levitt isn't interested so much in finance or money, but instead any large data set that he can slice and dice for patterns and deviations. This allows him to explore things as diverse as real estate, parenting, cheating in sumo wrestling, a drop in crime rates, and whether you can bribe kids to succeed in school. Some of their conclusions are obvious. Others are controversial, like the claim that Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortions, decreased the number of unwanted kids who would then be more likely candidates to commit crime. The basic takeaway of this movie, according to the authors, incentives matter whether financial, moral, or social, and the relationship between cause, effect, connection, and correlation is very complex. A 90-minute documentary, Freakonomics. And for poetry this week, considering the end times and the second coming of Christ, We've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, who lived from 1865 to 1939. The title is called Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows on the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. In what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 13th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.